Hello and welcome to Inside Track from Trustonic. This podcast brings together some of the leading minds from the mobile and automotive security industries to really get under the skin of how those worlds have been shaped, what drives them today, and what we can expect in the future. So please take a listen as we go beyond the headlines with the experts and market makers in their field. This week, it was great to catch up with Eric Prieskars, CEO of the Risk and Assurance Group. We cover a range of topics, including some of the results of his global survey into fraud and loss in the mobile ecosystem. Okay, if we can sort of just get into the overall subject of of handset fraud, and and again, that can be in relation to a particular region that can be globally spread. Clearly, you know, it's a it's a massive problem, regardless of where you sit within the mobile ecosystem. But for those of us that that are sort of non-experts in the space, um, can you give us a bit of an overview in terms of handset fraud, the part that it plays within the mobile industry, within mobile operators, retailers in particular, and just a bit of a flow really in terms of the scale of the problem, the nature of the the, the general kind of uh, buckets of fraud itself, uh, what happens to the devices, where they end up going, uh, and some of the kind of major mitigating factors would be great to kind of just get your, your opening thoughts on if that's all right. Okay, so it's such a big topic to talk about. I know. Handset crime. And it's so extensive and it's so international in nature as well, because we tend to hear about police agencies, law enforcement agencies. They seem to be mostly focused on other job criminals who work and operate in our own countries. And and occasionally, with some success, they, they get these criminal gangs and they find them and there's you know, several million pounds stuffed down the back of the sofa and all the rest of this. What's hard to get a grasp is the extent to which handset crime is organized crime that works across borders. So, for example, that you might have people based in one country who are systematic in recruiting other individuals to steal their phones with the result that if those individuals are caught and maybe you can even put a value to the amount of crime that those participants, people, uh, the amount of crime that those people have conducted, the number of handsets they stole. Even if you catch those people, they just get replaced by somebody else who's recruited by the kingpin. And it's very difficult for the police to justify spending a lot of time and resources on dealing with the more fundamental problems because the, you know, the underlying masterminds for these crimes are sat in another country. So it's very difficult to then pursue them in any meaningful way, which probably lends itself to a great deal of underestimation of the extent to which this crime is taking place. That maybe what we're seeing is a relatively superficial understanding where individual handsets are acquired by a customer who walks into a store and never pays for them. But it's difficult to piece together the actual underlying dynamic of whether there's much greater scale crime taking place across the industry. The best example of that was a Department of Justice case in the United States of America in 2019, where they identified one Asian gentleman that they wished to arrest on the basis that he had been paying AT&T employees over $1 million in bribes over the course of five years. Now, why do you spend $1 million bribing AT&T employees? You do it because you first ask them and you get them to unlock handsets so then they can be exported out of the country and sold elsewhere. Mm-hmm. When you improve the controls in AT&T to make it more difficult for those people to unlock the handsets, then you're bribing them to put 
malware onto systems, to give backdoor access to systems, so that you can then find other ways to unlock the devices without tripping up over the controls. So one accomplice of this, uh, this gentleman, this Asian gentleman who was wanted by the Department of Justice, and as I understand, is still wanted because they've never been able to track him down. One of the accomplices had received $428,500 over the course of five years. So I think the important point there is not just that this is a very large and lucrative crime because you wouldn't be able to justify paying that amount of money in bribes if it wasn't large and lucrative. It's that also it goes on. It can go on for very many years. And although AT&T did eventually identify who the insiders were who were responsible for them, it's clearly not something that happened overnight. It took a lot of investigative work within that business to get to identifying who was responsible. And as I say, even with the situation with values like that involved and law enforcement being able to identify who is ultimately the kingpin behind the scheme, if they're sat on the far side of the planet, there's very little that can be done about it, which makes, makes me believe that if I was that person and I was that way inclined, I'm not just going to end my criminal days having given up because they found me out at at and I'm just going to go find another operator somewhere else in the world. New people to bribe, new people to engage in the same criminal endeavor because clearly it works and because clearly there's a market for secondhand handsets. Perhaps the best way we can tackle this in the industry is to start being perhaps more intelligent about looking at the secondhand market, whether we could start to do clever things where we automatically review forums, uh, social media sites, the kinds of online markets where people are going to try to sell secondhand handsets. Maybe we could do more at the far end of the process to identify who's involved. Because as I say, these handsets are going to crop up in countries perhaps very far away from where the operator is. But the scale is enormous. And that's why, although we've done the survey, the RAG REFM survey this year and had a fabulous number of telcos responding, I still think it's very difficult to piece together and have a good, solid, reliable way of being able to generalize about the scopes of crime. I suspect that probably a lot of telcos just aren't doing enough investigation. And yes, they're aware of individual handsets going, but they're not piecing it together to a bigger picture where it's perhaps being driven by a smaller number of criminal entities than perhaps they first imagined. So I don't know if that answers your question. It does very much so. And it's very interesting, isn't it, in terms of how do you actually stitch together the bigger picture here? It's incredibly fragmented as a problem it's not something that uh, i mean operators obviously kind of they have uh, various challenges in terms of how and and uh, what they can discuss with each other anyway but uh, you know just as i said s- stitching this together on an international level very difficult i think you know certainly from a, a national or a domestic level you know, they're it's very often kind of reported in, in crime statistics so i think you know from the country that we're both sat in right now uh, I think it's about 400,000 plus uh, devices reported stolen to the police every year, but that's generally only to get a crime reference number so you can claim on the insurance. So it's probably more like two to three times that. Again, you know, similarly in Peru, two million a year, Mexico, more like six, Brazil, more like eight to 12 million a year. So again, you know, huge issues. But I was interested to understand a part that, that something like an IMEI blacklist plays within this. Certainly, if uh, a device is stolen within 
Europe, it's very often reported back by the carrier that uh, don't worry, it'll be attached to an IMEI blacklist and the device will largely be rendered useless. Whereas obviously that's not quite true, is it, Eric? Well, you know, it's a noble effort and it's to be applauded the amount the telcos that support the IMEI blacklist, the amount of effort they put into maintaining it, the amount of effort they put into signaling the issue. But we know in the end, it's a flawed approach. We know that, for example, there are handset manufacturers who totally disregard even legal requirements not to reuse IMEIs. And as a consequence, that completely undermines the purpose of having any kind of record of IMEI numbers in order to stop crime if you know that there are manufacturers who are pumping out tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of devices, sometimes all with literally the same IMEI on it. So there was a a big case in India not that long back where it wasn't so much the number of handsets because we know that this is a very significant problem in the industry. It was more the brazenness of just literally not caring about local laws in that country and being prepared as a manufacturer to break laws. Now, of course, again, there are plenty of manufacturers that the majority of manufacturers do respect the law in this regard. But it's, it, the international context is what undermines all of these efforts. It doesn't matter how good your IMEI blacklist really is. If there's another country in the world where an expensive handset is wanted as on the second-hand market and where the IMEI blacklist is made irrelevant because the phone is not going to be blocked. Plus, of course, we know that lots can be done in terms of trying to adjust, alter, uh, rework phones after they've been stolen. So it's, it's a good effort. And I think certainly, you know, we should applaud everybody who's been involved in it. But we know, we know it's not stopping the actual crime. Mm. We know that the criminals are able to engage and profit. And there are so many reasons why that I'm not saying that we should give up on the IMI blacklist, because whenever you put in place controls like this, a multi-layered approach is always helpful. And if it's stopping some crime, then that's better. But it, we clearly need more in the industry than just to rely upon that because that, that uh, is not doing the job. Furthermore, it's not really necessarily helping us catch the criminals. And as I say, if we're not putting the criminals out of business, then they're just going to keep on popping up and trying to find a different way, much like this gentleman in Asia, when AT&T improved their controls, he just found different ways to work around mm. their controls. That's right. And I think it's very interesting that, you know, it is largely a voluntary scheme. So obviously there are lots of countries in the world that that simply don't adhere to it. So it's like, okay, well, it's a lovely effort. But obviously, if you have a device that is on an IMEI blacklist in one country and you take it to country X or Y, you can turn that device on and it works perfectly fine. Thank you very much. So when you've got a device that's uh, in your pocket today, that's that's probably worth more than the TV on your wall. As you say, you know, the incentives for the criminal elements are obviously absolutely huge, especially from an organized crime perspective. Yeah. and, And, you know, let's be realistic here. The reason why we have so much fraud in the telecoms industry is it's a joined up industry. Phones have got to work wherever they are in the world. Networks have got to work together wherever they are in the world. But not everybody is honest. Not every country has the same standards in terms of expectations, in terms of enforcing the law upon certain elements in society. And as a result, you can have very serious enterprises, business concerns, that effectively know that they're thoroughly breaking the law, whether it's in their country or in other countries, they have no incentive to stop. It's a very lucrative industry for them. So we shouldn't be naive and say, I mean, particularly 
you and I, as Westerners, we shouldn't be naive and just assume that Western expectations are just followed throughout the planet. They're clearly not. And that means that there's plenty of opportunity. And as I say, even if you clamp down in one part of the world, then you've just got a whack-a-mole situation where maybe you've driven it away from there. What's to stop the criminals relocating to another part of the world? They're still going to siphon the handsets. They're still going to engage in the root source of the crime in the same places where they can get the expensive, the lucrative handsets they're going to resell. They'll find somewhere else to resell it. They'll always be somewhere in the world where if you offer them a, a handset that's worth $1,000 retail price new, and you offer it for a fraction of that price secondhand in some other market, there'll be people who would take that up, and there'll still be a very hefty profit margin for the criminals. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Do you, got, do you have a view in terms of the devices that are stolen and where they end up? And do you have a view in terms of are they ending up in the hands of people as fully working units or there's a percentage of those obviously that are very occasionally broken for for parts and and very often some precious even those small amounts precious materials within those devices but when you take the cumulative mass of devices stolen obviously the the total sum can be fairly uh, fairly interesting from a criminal element perspective so are they generally as whole devices that's the data that i've seen but i wouldn't say i know that because as i say we there's so so much work needs to be done to identify where the handsets are going. I mean, this is really where we need businesses like yours to be able to step up. And when anything happens, to have a better understanding. I mean, you stop the crime from happening, but we do need a better understanding of where the handset ends up. Because I think even with less sophisticated technology than that that you offer, we could do a better job of knowing where the handset is in the world than we often are. Yes, Clearly, some handsets have been broken up, but my perception of the data is it's still mostly basically being sold on the grey market to uh, perhaps a second-hand user or being done in larger bulk, but still as whole devices, because in the end, there's a lot of value in those devices. That's right, yeah, and like we basically pick up very, very similar information in terms of like, how do you remove the incentive for theft? So if you can, in effect, put a device beyond all reasonable use shortly after it is stolen, and it doesn't matter what you do to that device in terms of reflashing it, jailbreaking it, you know, wiping it and starting again, it doesn't actually make any difference. Then obviously you've removed the incentive and all you've got then is the physical device that can be stripped mm. of parts. But as you yeah. rightly point out, that's that's actually a fraction of the uh, of the problem and the and therefore the incentivization from a criminal element perspective. Yeah, and clearly criminals will strip for parts if that's the way they're going to end up making money, if we're clever enough to stop them using the phone again. But they wouldn't target the high-end phones if they were just looking for stripping for raw materials. They would make more sense to go for the low-end phones in that sense. And clearly there has been a lot of the data suggests it's the high-end phones that are targeted most by the criminals, clearly because the resale value of those phones is much greater rather than their value as parts. So one of the sources of statistics that I thought was most revealing was that there was a regulatory filing to the FCC by Verizon last year, and they were focusing on making the argument for locking 4G handsets during the first 30 days the consumer has them. They said in 2015 that handset fraud was minimal. That's their choice of words. Now, mm. But after that, they talked about it ramping up, significantly increasing year after year after year. So they got to the point where 200,000 devices were being stolen from them 
every year at a cost of approximately $200 million per annum. So the focus there is not on low-end handsets. The focus for mm. them is that they know it's the really valuable handsets that they wanted to have greater controls over because clearly they're the ones that have the greatest resale value. Mm-hmm. And speaking of, of carriers and, uh, and and the statistics, obviously, it would be good if we could point to uh, the survey that you've literally just had the results back in. Uh, yeah. Some very, very interesting questions. Not I haven't seen the results of that survey, obviously, but the questions were, were very, very interesting in this regard with this uh, with this topic in mind. And so it'd be good if you could give us a bit of a, a clue, maybe if you start maybe broader from a perspective of fraud as a percentage within within the carriers, that was super interesting as a question. And then I noticed that you're drilling down into into handset crime and handset fraud uh, a little bit later on in those questions. So, you know, statistics, anecdotes, interesting quotes, things like that would be fabulous, Eric, if you can share. Absolutely. So it really is fresh data this because we actually literally (laughs) closed the survey this morning so we've had very little time to actually analyze the data i did pull out a few statistics for you uh, to talk about today the full set of data will be made available november 1st and everybody will be able to see all the data it's anonymous the survey and where there has been any issues with people perhaps giving their identity away we further anonymize the data but all the raw data will be available so everyone can draw their own conclusions but Mm. headline figures just on basis of very quick analysis today average fraud loss to telcos as a result of fraud and criminal endeavors telcos estimate that that is 2.59 percent of their revenues which is actually a lot higher than some of the other surveys have said I have confidence in that number, though, because we had a total of 175 responses to the survey, which is also a lot larger than many of the other surveys that get quoted in this industry. So I think what you're seeing there is a very large number of telcos took the opportunity to engage online, particularly around some of the online events that we do in RAG. And as a result, perhaps we were reaching and getting answers from some telcos you normally aren't included, don't hear about, don't participate in some surveys, because mm. clearly we're getting a very large number there, and probably a very large geographic spread as well, global spread. So as a result, maybe there's some telcos there that are really driving up that average because previously they weren't included because maybe the higher end telcos are the ones ones who are better controlled are typically the ones who respond to these. So it's a 2.59% of revenues, obviously an enormous amount of money when you think mm. about the telecoms industry as a whole, being a trillion-dollar industry globally. Now, handset crime within that, that came out to be the fifth highest category of fraud loss. I think it was something in the order of we asked people about 15 different kinds of criminal fraudulent activity and to tell us to estimate how much they participated, how much they contributed to the whole in their business. So handset crime really quite high up there on the list, and that represented... 8.98% of all fraud losses per the survey. But, and this is very quick analysis here. So I'd love to look at the detail in more, uh, look at the data a little bit more detail before we reach too many conclusions. Of that 8.98%, that was, that number was generated by fewer than two thirds of the telcos responding to the survey, actually giving an answer to that question. So a lot of them gave no answer. Now, that makes sense for some of them because if you're say a wholesale carrier with no retail arm 
you're probably not going to suffer any handset losses because you're not in that business. So sure. you wouldn't respond and answer that. But it wasn't just telcos like that that were not giving an answer. There were clearly some telcos that put themselves down as mobile network operators, also not giving an answer to that question. Now, again, it may be some particulars around their business. Maybe they don't literally sell the handset. This has happened in some countries. But I suspect that what's happening is in a number of those cases, people didn't respond to that particular question because they didn't know the answer. Mm. So if we strip out all the ones who basically didn't respond to that question, you go up to 14.6% of fraud losses, a handset crime. You also see mm. a lot of variation in the answers. So one that made me chuckle a little bit is that one telco, clearly very precise telco, and are able to measure things to an extraordinary level. They said that their handset crime was, and brace yourself for this, was 0.003% of their fraud losses. <laughs> and hats off to people who are measuring fraud at that level of precision. I think that's <laughs> tremendous. Presumably one handset got stolen and that was it for the figures. But that was very atypical because actually what you saw was a large cluster of results where telcos were saying that around 20 to 25%, a quarter of their fraud losses were coming as a result of handset crime. And some were saying as high as 40% was handset mm. crime. So my suspicion is the ones who are saying 20, 25%, 40%, they probably just have a better handle on the extent of handset crime that's taking place, where some of the others, maybe they're more focused on other kinds of technical fraud, intercarrier fraud, perhaps aren't looking so much at the handset fraud. Perhaps it sits in a different part of the business, a part of the business perhaps more concerned with stock physical security aspects like that. So perhaps not being able to piece together all the data in one place. So I suspect that although those numbers are very high, I think they're probably an underestimate of the true extent of handset fraud that's taking place in the telecoms industry. But whether an underestimate or not, this is clearly an area where you can add value to your business because some of the changes put in place to reduce handset crime are not as costly as the amounts that you're losing as a result of that handset crime. So rather than just arguing about the gross value of the crime, I always say to people, think about the return on investment for implementing mm. new and improved controls. And I think the, the argument there is very clear cut. It's certainly something people should be looking at because with perhaps the exception of the company that has just 0.003% fraud losses, <laughs> I think most of those telcos are going to get a very healthy return on investment if they put more effort into preventing handset crime. Yes, it's interesting. I mean, there's certainly a huge span there. And obviously, we talked to, to many, many operators on exactly this point, clearly not as extensive as your survey uh, would imply from that data. But we've certainly picked up carriers where 40% is certainly a, a cited term, hence their their uh, keenness to actually get the problem solved. So I think maybe the, uh, the respondent that had it as uh, 0.00, uh, maybe that was probably uh, a mistype or something, but uh, certainly something that's not selling too many devices, perhaps. It, um, it wasn't a mistype because that person gave some very precise, very precise. other questions. Yeah. So I, 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 they very deliberately typed it in, so I give them credit. Maybe they put an extra zero in by accident. But I mean, some are very good, some are very precise, and it is possible. But I think, as you say, what we have here is a situation where anecdotally we know it's very high. And as a former director of risk management myself, the worst thing that I can have in a telco, the worst problem that sometimes telcos face 
is the right message isn't getting to the most senior people in the organization. Mm. So somebody in the organization may be aware of the scale of handset fraud, but it isn't mm. percolating up the chain to the right decision makers who can say, why are we accepting this degree? Why are we allowing this to take place? And partly, again, that may be related to the problem that people are aware of phones being stolen, but they're not piecing it together that there may be some common root causes to the crime that could be addressed rather than just saying, oh, this is casual crime in society. There's nothing much we can do about it. Actually, there are things that can be done about it that are very effective in reducing this uh, handset fraud. It's just a mm. case of decision makers with the power to choose to implement those solutions, actually being aware of the need to implement those solutions. Mm. It's very, very true. In fact, we, we find similar thing in terms of when we talk to individual departments, they're obviously highly acutely aware of their particular element and, and observation around the issue, but perhaps quite unaware of the knock-on effect that that has into different parts of the business. So one that we always tend to find that's quite interesting is how you sort of de-risk the handset fraud elements, but you still obviously have to trade, you still have to acquire customers. And uh, in the vast majority of the world, you know, you're doing that via uh, handset deals, handset pricing. So obviously on the one hand, within a carrier, they want those uh, handset-based contract deals to be as aggressive as possible from a price perspective. But obviously, on the other hand, um, if you make them too aggressive, then obviously you're encouraging the fraudsters and the, the nefarious elements of, of society to uh, gravitate towards your network and therefore obviously driving that fraud figure up. So there seems to be this constant tussle between those two parts of the organization, which all you know absolutely uh, rightly have the, the best in, intent from their own perspective. But as you say, you've got to go quite far up the organization to see that uh, right the way across the piece. So, yeah, it's very interesting where you've got the, the stats you can pull out there. You, you nailed it, Dion. That's exactly the problem. Again, speaking as somebody, a former director of risk management, the issue that we know that, that organizations have culturally is that we incentivize some people to do some things, we incentivize other people to do other things. It's right. perfectly sensible that telcos want to get as many handsets into the hands of as many customers as possible, and they'll find ways to make that happen. And that, that's good business. I'm not going to argue against it. We shouldn't try to shut our own businesses down. What we don't sometimes have is the perspective on weighing up what's happening from a risk perspective. And what we can do, instead of like instead of having a crude argument, as sometimes happens in telcos where people say, well, we need to get the handsets out. We need to have the, you're, you're trying to grow your customer base, for example. So you're going to be assertive in the marketplace in trying to appeal to customers with attractive handsets that they really want at a good price. So then you can reap the rewards over time as they uh, use your network and, and purchase your services. Makes perfect sense, perfectly fine. Is somebody, instead of like taking a crude view of that, saying we should reduce it and then that leads to a, an internal debate that never goes anywhere because actually you do want in the end sell handsets, you do want customers to have them. Where is the level of sophistication happening mm -hmm. where someone is saying, well, we want the handsets to go out. What can we do to be more intelligent about the way the handsets are delivered to the customers so that we reduce the likelihood, reduce the propensity to crime while still being able to circulate the same number of handsets, the same number of customers. And this is an area where, therefore, you end up with kind of very severe debates in the industry about things that relatively crude lock-in 
of handsets to networks? Is this something mm -hmm. that disincentivizes customers because they don't want to be locked to a network? Is this something where regulators step in and say, I mean, I, I frankly, I disagreed with the UK regulator when they looked at the question and they made an announcement of the type that said, handset locking makes no difference to crime. Clearly, <laughs> a crude handset lock that locks the handset to the, the network that has provided the handset does make a difference to crime. You would not have criminals bribing telcos to unlock handsets unless mm -hmm. it was stopping them from committing crime. I mean, I thought the UK argument there was very narrow, very instant, and particularly didn't look at global statistics. So therefore, was only looking at a case where things were the way they were in the UK. So therefore, everything is fine in the UK. Crew locks. Yes, we understand that there can be a problem. It's a disincentive to customers. Regulators don't like it. But we should be looking at more intelligent ways to apply mm. controls over handsets. And again, that's where a business like yours can come in because there are more intelligent, more sophisticated, more nuanced ways of managing handsets to discourage, prevent crime. Again, the decision makers are aware of it. I think in a lot of cases, the problem is they're not aware of those options. Mm, yeah, I agree. It's very interesting if you just look at flagship devices over the last 10 years. Obviously, we've just had iPhone 12 pop its head above the parapet. And if you take, obviously, a look at the original iPhone, you know, it's it's well over triple the original price of that device. Same thing if you look at, you know, the leading uh, Samsung Galaxy range, etc. So, you know, you think about this huge amount of investment that carriers are having to make into subsidization and financing of devices, but then the relative immaturity of the, the methodology and the, the mechanisms they have to actually control and lock those those devices. Or as you say, just approach it in a more nuanced way. You know, the, the devices have tripled, quadrupled in price over that period of time, but the sophistication of the methodology and the mechanisms to control those devices certainly haven't tripled. They've basically mm. stayed exactly as they were. So, you know, it's you can't uh, you struggle to have one without the other. That's for sure. So, you know, again, there's um, there's plenty of room for, for growth in that area so that that both objectives can be achieved. So we're keeping the fraud under control, the bad debt under control, but we're releasing the brakes from a trading perspective and able to just say yes to more customers, accept more onto the network rather than having somewhat uh, draconian rejection rates. We were looking at some stats just the other day, just for your edification, and we were trying to find another industry that rejected a similar percentage of, uh, of postpay contract customers than mobile, given the fact that depending on, on who you ask, where you are in the world, rejection rates for postpay customers when attaching a device to a contract can be anything between 30% is the lowest we've ever seen globally and uh, 70 to 80% is the highest we've seen globally. But what other industry literally turns away even 30% of customers that want to buy something from you? You know, that's an incredibly uh, challenging dynamic to be faced with. And, you know, I think this all comes back to the fact that mobile operators, the mobile telecommunications industry, is still very young. And there's a degree of naivety and novelty still that we need to work through. When you're in a, a process of enormously rapid growth, where nobody has done these things before, where you're recruiting people with no real experience of doing this, and you're having to bring all these new people in, these young people, people with new ideas, you're going to focus on basic, straightforward solutions. You're not going to be thinking of like how to 
craft and eke out the every last penny of value out of what you're doing, how to avoid everything that can go wrong. You've got to get something basic, simple, and robust. And that's a, that's a perfectly sensible, healthy attitude to, to take. The, ch- the challenge is not to just then become complacent and to stick with the basic, robust, 90% effective approach, where, as you say, maybe there's plenty of good customers that you want on your network that previously you were rejecting because you just weren't that sophisticated in identifying, separating the wheat from the chaff, the good from the bad in who you really wanted. So a crude mechanism was perfectly fine in the early days because you were onboarding so many anyway. Now, maybe you need to be more sophisticated, but that simplistic tug of war that's sometimes presented as being the choice in risk management, you either do something to grow or you put in place a control, a restriction, obstruction that stops it. That's not the way to do it. Greater intelligence is the way to move forward. And that's always something where people do have to sit down and go, okay, we may have done it like this for the last five years, 10 years, and we may be somewhat satisfied with the results. Can we do it better? Can we be more intelligent with our choices that we're making? And as a result, actually sell to a lot more people, actually grow and increase your revenues because intelligent risk management is now allowing you to take risks you wouldn't have previously taken because previously you would have had a simple crude metric of how much risk you're taking. As a result, you would have rejected that customer or you simply wouldn't have taken a certain approach or like offering a service. So this is again an area where telcos need to keep thinking out of the box, keep looking for new opportunities and keep deploying new technology, like the technology that you offer to Yeah, as you say, I think it's very interesting in terms of your points around the age of the industry. You look at obviously multiple other sectors and industries, you know, they certainly go through this phase of extreme growth in the initial instance and then they're not even getting to edge cases to solve. You're getting to huge problems to solve quite late in the day. It's very interesting. And again, being sort of fairly young as an industry, the various elements of it do tend to keep their cards fairly close to their chest. So so obviously it's very interesting from, from your perspective when you're talking to people from, from multiple parts of the industry. You know, it'd be interesting to kind of get your view in terms of how open people are across uh, carriers or even different parts of the same industry in terms of coming together to help solve these problems in a collaborative fashion? Or is it more of a one-way street where uh, they're generally in receive mode most of the time? Well, I'm probably going to get into trouble for answering this question, (laughs) honestly, uh, Dion, when I think about it. Because the sad story for me is that I think people talk about collaboration a lot. Mm. It's it's one of those things where, to use a, a current analogy, that's uh, relevant for the pandemic. If you were to ask people, are you in favor of a lockdown? They all go, yeah, I'm in favor of a lockdown. I don't, want to, I don't want to spread disease. I'm a responsible person. But we know that surveys are biased because people mm. tell you what you want to hear, what they think sounds like a socially responsible thing to do. But in reality, actually, their behavior doesn't necessarily live up to the expectations that they state when they give you that answer. And I think it's like that with collaboration against fraud in the telecoms industry. You'll never get anybody who says, I'm against collaboration against fraud. Everybody's in favor of collaboration against fraud. But then when you try to get them to do something, of course, it can be a different matter. And there are some, there will be valid reasons why people won't want to do certain things or can't do certain things. But there's also a degree of inertia. 
there's also mm. a degree that if you do something to help others, it may not be the kind of thing that your boss reward is gets rewards you for or applauds you for because what's the benefit to us in helping other people that's often mm. rather the sadly the case and again that comes back to things like the imei blacklist yes mm. we should all be doing the imei blacklist but you know there's going to be some telcos out there who looked at it and said well great i'm happy to see everybody else's data not so bothered about adding my data to the list mm. we know that happens in reality mm. so you know this is this is the the tragedy of the common good uh writ large and this is what happens a lot with the fraud industry i think sometimes and forgive me i'm going to throw a bit of a wacky theory out here but i think it's mm. right i think sometimes when we look at things like collaboration we tend to get a bit bogged down with things like associations and standards and rules mm. and committees and they're discussing what everybody should do I think sometimes what we need is champions rather mm. than talking about how everybody should do something when we know that everybody's going to do it. We should sometimes just applaud the ones who set a good example for others. Mm. We should be prepared to say, and I hope that you will do this with your business and your customers. Don't be shy about saying not just you're a supplier to whichever telco, but also this is an example that other telcos should follow because mm. it's reducing crime overall. The telco maybe isn't just looking after their own interests. If telcos were more effective in fighting fraud, it would discourage the fraudster from continuing mm. their chosen line of work. Mm. If they knew that telcos were doing the utmost to try to reduce fraud, they might go away and do something else and spare everybody else the problem. So I think sometimes we need, and this may sound rather an odd thing to say, but I think it's true. We need some more heroes. We need some mm. more champions, as I say, shining examples where we hold people up, not because, and forgive me, not just because they spent the most money on buying a system or something mm. like that, but where the yeah. individuals perhaps in the telcos were the ones who were most outspoken, most driven, to lead to improvement, did most to actually encourage collaboration with their peers. Mm. I think we need some of those um, positive stories because look, we, we tend to talk a lot about the negative stories. I've done that today with you, Dion, with the with the Department of Justice chasing people mm. around Asia and Verizon wanting to lock phones and the bad statistics. There's a lot of bad news messages there. Sometimes we need to say to individuals, if you want to, if you want to get the best out of them, let's reward them. Let's give some people mm. a pat on the back. And that's not just a pay or promotion within their company. It's recognition outside of their company too, I think. Mm. So I hope that you, and perhaps in the course of these interviews that you're doing, Dion, maybe talk to some of your customers and that might be a way to give them a pat on the back, give the individual some recognition that that person has done a really good job and is setting mm. an example that others should follow. Because even just, even just coming on something like this and talking mm. about a good case study, a good positive example of reducing fraud. Somebody else will be listening elsewhere around the planet. They'll hear that story. They'll have a new idea. They'll, have, they'll receive a new idea they've never heard of before. They'll be motivated. They'll imagine themselves in that person's shoes. Mm. More effective than talking about rules. 
Very much so. Very much so. And we do. And the truth of the matter is, we do have some fantastic case studies internally that, unfortunately, as we were kind of referring to, operators can be somewhat shy in terms of uh, sticking their head above the parapet here and acknowledging that they had a problem. But this is what they did about it, and this was the net effect. But you know, when we're looking at it from from the inside out, it's wonderful to see actually crime statistics and the theft of devices decreasing on that particular carrier. But what's very interesting is that when we're working with a single carrier in a market, how that crime shifts from one operator to the next. So you literally see the problem shift from one carrier to the other three or the other two or the other four, depending on which country we're talking about, which is very, very interesting to watch. And where we are kind of getting some some very interesting net effects at a country level is indeed where the carriers acknowledge that it's a big problem, but also the regulator acknowledges that it's a big problem as well. So you have Peru, for example, where you have Occiptel. That's the, uh, the regulating body there, and they've mandated into the carriers that, look, it's just unacceptable that people are getting attacked or worse in the street for their devices to the tune, mm. tune of over two million a year. Uh, you have to do something about it. Uh, Canada, you know, very similar. The instances of assault, obviously, much less, but obviously a very big problem. Mm. And again, you know, the, the more kind of dialed in those regulators are to those problems, you kind of have this bottom up, top down push. So, like, we we see some very different net effects depending on who the driving force is in the market. But it is quite viral. That's why one of the reasons that, that we... Um, we're obviously very kind of hesitant to say that we'll only ever work with with one player in a particular country. And we get asked that a lot. But it's like, well, actually, you want to solve this problem for your country as well as for your company. You know, I think that there is a greater prize to be had there if you can abolish uh, or significantly reduce something like this at a national level um, as well as at a company level. Um, so, yeah, I completely, completely support the point, Eric. Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, taking you mentioned Canada there and I've got a home in Canada. And that reminds me of the old joke where you have two hikers out and then a bear is coming after them. And one tightens up his shoelaces with the intention of running away. And the other guy says, well, you can't outrun a bear. And then he says, well, I don't need to outrun the bear. I only need to outrun you. That is <laughs> that sums up the attitude of a lot of telcos. So when we talk about <laughs> right. collaboration, we don't collaborate. We're just trying to outrun each other. And that's our right. attitude. Whereas we, we assume the bear will always be there chasing us. If we actually collaborated together, we might not have to be plagued by these bears chasing us so much because they simply wouldn't have the resources to keep reinvesting in new criminal schemes or modifying the existing criminal schemes. So actually, mm. we would be doing ourselves more of a favor than is simply taking us everybody looking out for themselves attitude. And so that, again, I don't want to be negative about collaboration. There are some wonderful people doing collaboration, mm -hmm. but we should, instead of being rewarding the people who have got the best running shoes on, who are fastest at sprinting ahead of everybody else, we should also be saying to the telcos, rewarding the telcos, thanking the telcos and the mm -hmm. individuals at telcos who do most. So, you know, has, I mean, forgive me, I don't think I've ever heard of anybody receiving an award for contributing to the IMEI blacklist. Perhaps somebody should have received an award along the way. Perhaps whichever telco has generated and added most data to that blacklist, instead of it being seen a bad thing, that they've added a lot of data, maybe they should be congratulated for setting a great example for others. And I do think that would influence the way some people behave, sometimes we do that. I can see the comms risk award ceremony 
hoving into view as we speak. Um, but I, I completely support the point, and I think you know it's it's an excellent place to start to bring it to a conclusion. But before we do, I think it would be great for those of uh, the folks that are listening who are maybe less familiar with with kind of where they can find you, where they can find more. Obviously, you know, the, the, the website is right there in terms of com risk, but and, and obviously Rag TV is a fantastic success through lockdown, especially when when we'll be having the next season of that, Eric, would be very interesting. If you can reveal as an exclusive today and then where else can we find some some more information about you? Where should we follow you on on the socials or, or where else can we find your stuff? Yeah, people people working me to death, I tell you, with fighting this fraud <laughs> and dealing with these risks. We don't know when seasons. Thank you very much. You're very complimentary. Season three of Rag TV, we don't have a date for when that's come out, but please do visit the website riskandassurancegroup.org where you'll see the episodes of season one and season two where we've interviewed a whole bunch of great people, including you, of course, Dion, and for our previous episodes. Season three, I don't have a date yet. We're so bogged down. We're trying to make sure we get this survey findings out and some of the other things we're about to launch. Riskandassurancegroup.org, you'll find also plenty of other information about other collaborative activities we engage with around the industry to fight fraud, such as the Ragwangiri blockchain, for example. Not so much handset fraud, but still very pertinent for mobile operators and something that really plagues and upsets a lot of customers, Wangiri fraud. Uh, one ring and then you're looking and you're going, well, who's this because who's called me? tricked into calling back and you don't realize that you've made an expensive phone call until you see mm. it on your bill a month later. So these things, we certainly can work together. Of course, as you mentioned, I'm also the editor of ComsRisk. So ComsRisk.com put out a story every single day. And thank you very much. You've been very complimentary. Yes, we've certainly seen record numbers of people reading ComsRisk as well uh, this year. So I think clearly the what I'm, seeing, what I'm seeing and what makes me optimistic and more hopeful is that we are seeing some increased maturity from professionals all around the industry who have kind of got past the simplest, the most obvious, the first take on problems or how to deal with them. And are now looking for more. And they're looking for examples and more looking for case studies, people to emulate, companies to emulate, suggestions for how to do things differently. There's a great appetite for that. So uh, I don't think it should be the... Uh, Commerce Risk Award for biggest contribution to the IMEI database. I think it might be the Commerce Risk Award sponsored by Tristonic. I think <laughs> we should be looking for. We'll certainly give it a go. Well, as we said before, you know, we are huge fans uh, of yourself and everything you do, Eric. I think obviously there, there should be more people like you in the same vein. I think, you know, it is the ultimate game of whack-a-mole, right? So I think shining a light on on the myriad of, of existing and, and obviously other ways that are coming over the horizon where uh, we all need to kind of get together to to combat uh, all manner of, uh, of of fraud, I think, is is very, very important. So thank you for all of your efforts on behalf of, obviously, not only us at Trustonic, but everybody else out there around the world has benefited from it. As I said, you do a stand-up job. So, so thank you very much. And again, thank you for your time today. It's been fantastic. Thank you, Dion. It's always a pleasure chatting. <laughs>